Section 17 of Good Sense. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. Good Sense by Paul Henri Thierry, Baron Dolbach. Translator unknown. Section 17, parts 171 through 181. 171. Supposition of the existence of a god unnecessary to morality. We are perpetually told that without a god there would be no moral obligation, that the people and even the sovereigns require a legislator powerful enough to constrain them. Moral constraint supposes a law, but this law arises from the eternal and necessary relations of things with one another relations which have nothing common with the existence of a god. The rules of man's conduct are derived from his own nature, which he is capable of knowing, and not from the divine nature of which he has no idea. These rules constrain or oblige us, that is, we render ourselves estimable or contemptible, amiable or detestable, worthy of reward or of punishment, happy or unhappy, accordingly as we conform to or deviate from these rules. The law which obliges man not to hurt himself is founded upon the nature of a sensible being who, in whatever way he came into this world, is forced by his actual essence to seek good and shun evil, to love pleasure and fear pain. The law which obliges man not to injure, and even to do good to others, is founded upon the nature of sensible beings living in society whose essence compels them to despise those who are useless and to detest those who oppose their felicity. Whether there exists a God or not, whether this God has spoken or not, the moral duties of men will always be the same, so long as they are sensible beings. Have men, then, need of a God whom they know not, of an invisible legislator, of a mysterious religion and of chimerical fears, in order to learn that every excess evidently tends to destroy them, that to preserve health they must be temperate, that to gain the love of others it is necessary to do them good, that to do them evil is a sure means to incur their vengeance and hatred? Before the law there was no sin. Nothing is more false than this maxim. It suffices that man is what he is, or that he is a sensible being, in order to distinguish what gives him pleasure or displeasure. It suffices that one man knows that another man is a sensible being like himself, to perceive what is useful or hurtful to him. It suffices that man needs his fellow creature, in order to know that he must fear to excite sentiments unfavorable to himself. Thus the feeling and thinking being has only to feel and think, in order to discover what he must do for himself and others. I feel, and another feels like me. This is the foundation of all morals. 172. Supernatural morality are fatal to the public welfare. We can judge of the goodness of a system of morals, only by its conformity to the nature of man. By this comparison, we have a right to reject it, if contrary to the welfare of our species. 
Whoever has seriously meditated religion, whoever has carefully weighed its advantages and disadvantages, will be fully convinced that both are injurious to the interests of man, or directly opposite to his nature. To arms! The cause of your God is at stake. Heaven is outraged. The faith is in danger. Impiety! Blasphemy! Heresy! The magical power of these formidable words, the real value of which the people never understand, have at all times enabled priests to excite revolts, to dethrone kings, to kindle civil wars, and to lay waste. If we examine the important objects which have produced so many ravages upon earth, it appears that either the foolish reveries and whimsical conjectures of some theologian who did not understand himself, or else the pretensions of the clergy, have broken every social bond and deluged mankind with blood and tears. 173. The Union of Church and State is a Calamity The sovereigns of this world, by associating the divinity and the government of their dominions, by proclaiming themselves his vicegerents and representatives upon earth, and by acknowledging they hold their power from him, have necessarily constituted his ministers their own rivals or masters. Is it then astonishing that priests have often made kings feel the superiority of the celestial monarch? Have they not more than once convinced temporal princes that even the greatest power is compelled to yield to the spiritual power of opinion? Nothing is more difficult than to serve two masters, especially when they are not agreed upon what they require. The association of religion with politics necessarily introduced double legislation. The law of God, interpreted by his priests, was often repugnant to the law of the sovereign or the interest of the state. When princes have firmness and are confident of the love of their subjects, the law of God is sometimes forced to yield to the wise intentions of the temporal sovereign. But generally the sovereign authority is obliged to give way to the divine authority, that is, to the interests of the clergy. Nothing is more dangerous to a prince than to encroach upon the authority of the church, that is, to attempt to reform abuses consecrated by religion. God is never more angry than when we touch the divine rights, privileges, possessions, or immunities of his priests. The metaphysical speculations of religious opinions of men influence their conduct only when they judge them conformable to their interest. Nothing proves this truth more clearly than the conduct of many princes with respect to the spiritual power which they often resist. Ought not a sovereign, persuaded of the importance and rights of religion, to believe himself in conscience bound to receive respectfully the orders of its priests, and to regard them as the orders of the divinity? There was a time when kings and people, more consistent in their conduct, were convinced of the rights of spiritual power, and becoming its slaves, yielded to it upon every occasion, and were but docile instruments in its hands. That happy time is past. By a strange inconsistency, the most devout monarchs are sometimes seen to oppose the enterprise of those whom they yet regard as the ministers of God. 
A sovereign, deeply religious, ought to remain prostrate at the feet of his ministers and regard them as true sovereigns. Is there upon earth a power which has a right to put itself in competition with that of the Most High? 174. National religions are ruinous. Have princes, then, who imagine themselves interested in cherishing the prejudices of their subjects, seriously reflected upon the effects which have been, and may be again, produced by certain privileged demagogues, who have a right to speak at pleasure, and in the name of heaven to inflame the passions of millions of subjects? What ravages would not these sacred haranguers cause if they should conspire, as they have so often done, to disturb the tranquillity of a state? To most nations nothing is more burdensome and ruinous than the worship of their gods. Not only do the ministers of these gods everywhere constitute the first order in the state, but they also enjoy the largest portion of the goods of society, and have a right to levy permanent taxes upon their fellow citizens. What real advantages, then, do these organs of the Most High procure the people for the immense profits extorted from their industry? In exchange for their riches and benefits, what do they give them but mysteries, hypotheses, ceremonies, subtle questions, and endless quarrels, which states are again compelled to pay with blood? 175. Religion Paralyzes Morality Religion, though said to be the firmest prop of morality, evidently destroys its true springs in order to substitute imaginary ones, inconceivable chimeras, which, being obviously contrary to reason, nobody firmly believes. All nations declare that they firmly believe in a god who rewards and punishes. All say they are persuaded of the existence of hell and paradise. Yet, do these ideas render men better or counteract the most trifling interests? Everyone assures us that he trembles at the judgments of God. Yet, everyone follows his passions when he thinks himself sure of escaping the judgments of man. The fear of invisible powers is seldom so strong as the fear of visible ones. Unknown or remote punishments strike the multitude far less forcibly than the sight of the gallows. Few courtiers fear the anger of their god so much as the displeasure of their master. A pension, a title, or a ribbon suffices to efface the remembrance both of the torments of hell and of the pleasures of the celestial court. The caresses of a woman repeatedly prevail over the menaces of the Most High. A jest, a stroke of ridicule, a witticism, make more impression upon the man of the world than all the grave notions of his religion. Are we not assured that a true repentance is enough to appease the deity? Yet we do not see this true repentance is very sincere. At least it is rare to see noted thieves, even at the point of death, restore goods which they have unjustly acquired. Men are undoubtedly persuaded that they shall fit themselves for eternal fire if they cannot insure themselves against it. But some useful compacts may be made with heaven. 
by giving the church a part of his fortune, almost every devout rogue may die in peace without concerning himself in what he gained his riches. 176. Fatal Consequences of Devotion By the confession of the warmest defenders of religion and of its utility, nothing is more rare than sincere conversions, and, we might add, nothing more unprofitable to society. Men are not disgusted with the world until the world is disgusted with them. If the devout have the talent of pleasing God and his priests, they have seldom that of being agreeable or useful to society. To a devotee, religion is a veil which covers all passions, pride, ill-humor, anger, revenge, impatience, and rancor. Devotion arrogates a tyrannical superiority which banishes gentleness, indulgence, and gaiety. It authorizes people to censure their neighbors, to reprove and revile the profane for the greater glory of God. It is very common to be devout and at the same time destitute of every virtue and quality necessary to social life. 177. The idea of a future life is not consoling to man. It is asserted that the dogma of another life is of the utmost importance to peace and happiness, that without it men would be destitute of motives to do good. What need is there of terrors and fables to make man sensible how he ought to conduct himself? Does not everyone see that he has the greatest interest in meriting the approbation, esteem, and benevolence of the beings who surround him, and in abstaining from everything by which he may incur the censure, contempt, and resentment of society? However short an entertainment, a conversation, or visit, does not each desire to act his part decently and agreeably to himself and others? If life is but a passage, let us strive to make it easy, which we cannot effect if we fail in regard to those who travel with us. Religion, occupied with its gloomy reveries, considers man merely as a pilgrim upon earth, and therefore supposes that, in order to travel the more securely, he must forsake company and deprive himself of pleasure and amusements, which might console him for the tediousness and fatigue of the journey. A stoical and morose philosopher sometimes gives us advice as irrational as that of religion, but a more rational philosophy invites us to spread flowers upon the way of life, to dispel melancholy and banish terrors, to connect our interest with that of our fellow travelers, and by gaiety and lawful pleasures to divert our attention from difficulties and accidents to which we are often exposed. It teaches us that to travel agreeably we should abstain from what might be injurious to ourselves and carefully shun what might render us odious to our associates. 178. An atheist is fully as conscientious as a religious man. It is asked what motives an atheist can have to do good. The motive to please himself and his fellow creatures, to live happily and peaceably, 
to gain the affection and esteem of men. Can he, who fears not the gods, fear anything? He can fear men, he can fear contempt, dishonor, the punishment of the laws. In short, he can fear himself, and the remorse felt by all those who are conscious of having incurred or merited the hatred of their fellow creatures. Conscience is the internal testimony, which we bear to ourselves, of having acted so as to merit the esteem or blame of the beings with whom we live, and it is founded upon the clear knowledge we have of men and of the sentiments which our actions must produce in them. The conscience of the religious man consists in imagining that he has pleased or displeased his God, of whom he has no idea, and whose obscure and doubtful intentions are explained to him only by men of doubtful veracity, who, like him, are utterly unacquainted with the essence of the deity, and are little agreed upon what can please or displease him. In a word, the conscience of the credulous is directed by men who have themselves an erroneous conscience, or whose interest stifles knowledge. Can an atheist have a conscience? What are his motives to abstain from hidden vices and secret crimes of which other men are ignorant and which are beyond the reach of laws? He may be assured by constant experience that there is no vice which, by the nature of things, does not punish itself. Would he preserve this life? He will avoid every excess that may impair his health. He will not wish to lead a languishing life which would render him a burden to himself and others. As for secret crimes, he will abstain from them for fear he shall be forced to blush at himself from whom he cannot flee. If he has any reason, he will know the value of the esteem which an honest man ought to have for himself. He will see that unforeseen circumstances may unveil the conduct which he feels interested in concealing from others. The other world furnishes no motives for doing good to him who finds none on earth. 179. An atheistical king far preferable to a religious king. The speculative atheist, says the theist, may be an honest man, but his writings will make political atheists. Princes and ministers, no longer restrained by the fear of God, will abandon themselves without scruple to the most horrid excesses. But, however great the depravity of an atheist upon the throne, can it be stronger and more destructive than that of the many conquerors, tyrants, persecutors, ambitious men, and perverse courtiers, who, though not atheists, but often very religious and devout, have notwithstanding made humanity groan under the weight of their crimes? Can an atheistical prince do more harm to the world than a Louis the Eleventh, a Philip the Second, a Richelieu, who all united religion with crime? Nothing is more rare than atheistical princes, nothing more common than tyrants and ministers who are very wicked and very religious. 180. Philosophy produces morality. A man of reflection cannot be incapable of his duties, 
of discovering the relations subsisting between men, of meditating his own nature, of discerning his own wants, propensities, and desires, and of perceiving what he owes to beings who are necessary to his happiness. These reflections naturally lead him to a knowledge of the morality most essential to social beings. Dangerous passions seldom fall to the lot of a man who loves to commune with himself, to study, and to investigate the principles of things. The strongest passion of such a man will be to know truth and his ambition to teach it to others. Philosophy cultivates the mind. On the score of morals and honesty, has not he who reflects and reasons evidently an advantage over him who makes it a principle never to reason? If ignorance is useful to priests and to the oppressors of mankind, it is fatal to society. Man, void of knowledge, does not enjoy reason. Without reason and knowledge, he is a savage liable to commit crimes. Morality, or the science of duties, is acquired only by the study of man and of what is relative to man. He who does not reflect is unacquainted with true morality and walks with precarious steps in the path of virtue. The less men reason, the more wicked they are. Savages, princes, nobles, and the dregs of the people are commonly the worst of men, because they reason the least. The devout man seldom reflects and rarely reasons. He fears all inquiry, scrupulously follows authority, and often, through an error of conscience, makes it a sacred duty to commit evil. The atheist reasons. He consults experience, which he prefers to prejudice. If he reasons justly, his conscience is enlightened. He finds more real motives to do good than the bigot whose only motives are his fallacies and who never listens to reason. Are not the motives of the atheist sufficiently powerful to counteract his passions? Is he blind enough to be unmindful of his true interest, which ought to restrain him? But he will be neither worse nor better than the numerous believers who, notwithstanding religion and its sublime precepts, follow a conduct which religion condemns. Is a credulous assassin less to be feared than an assassin who believes nothing? Is a very devout tyrant less tyrannical than an undevout tyrant? 181. Religious opinions have little influence upon conduct. Nothing is more uncommon than to see men consistent. Their opinions never influence their conduct except when conformable to their temperaments, passions, and interests. Daily experience shows that religious opinions produce much evil and little good. They are hurtful because they often favor the passions of tyrants, of ambitious men, of fanatics, and of priests. They are of no effect because incapable of counterbalancing the present interests of the greater part of mankind. Religious principles are of no avail when they act in opposition to ardent desires, though not unbelievers, 
men then conduct themselves as if they believed nothing. We shall always be liable to err when we judge of the opinions of men by their conduct or of their conduct by their opinions. A religious man, notwithstanding the unsociable principles of a sanguinary religion, will sometimes, by a happy inconsistency, be humane, tolerant, and moderate. The principles of his religion do not then agree with the gentleness of his character. Libertines, debauchees, hypocrites, adulterers, and rogues often appear to have the best ideas upon morals. Why do they not reduce them to practice? Because their temperament, their interest, and their habits do not accord with their sublime theories. The rigid principles of Christian morality, which many people regard as divine, have but little influence upon the conduct of those who preach them to others. Do they not daily tell us to do what they preach and not what they practice? The partisans of religion often denote an infidel by the word libertine. It is possible that many unbelievers may have loose morals, which is owing to their temperament and not to their opinions. But how does their conduct affect their opinions? Cannot, then, an immoral man be a good physician, architect, geometrician, logician, or metaphysician? A man of irreproachable conduct may be extremely deficient in knowledge and reason. In quest of truth, it little concerns us from whom it comes. Let us not judge men by their opinions, nor opinions by men. Let us judge men by their conduct and their opinions by their conformity with experience and reason, and by their utility to mankind. End of section 17 Recording by Roger Moline